one of the most beautiful pictures of faithful leadership in the Bible is found in the final words, the final speech of Israel's most well-known king, King David. In his final address to his people, David writes in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. He says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Good leaders cultivate good things in the people that they lead. Good leaders cultivate good things in and among the people that they lead. Good leaders promote and develop good things, good fruit, blessing among those that they lead. This morning, we as a congregation set out on a journey to explore one of the greatest speeches from the greatest leader who has ever walked the face of the earth. This morning, we begin a sermon series in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount in order to cultivate good things among the subjects of his kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares the qualities of the kingdom, the characteristics of the king and those who follow him as king, what life in his kingdom looks like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The qualities of the kingdom, the ways of Jesus the King. So the title of our sermon series, for the next several months, we're going to take it bit by bit, bit by bit and digest it slowly. The title of this sermon series will be The Ways of the King. The Ways of the King. Let's open our Bibles and explore the ways of this king. You can find the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount uh, Matthew chapter 5, page 809, page 809 of the Bibles we've provided on your chairs. And if you're here today and you need a Bible, we love to give free Bibles away. So when you come through the lobby, the bookshelf closest to the restrooms, there are several hard copy uh, Bibles, black Bibles. Please take one if you need one. Give one to a friend. We, we love to give Bibles away. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, uh, page 809. Matthew writes, seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. We begin the Sermon on the Mount where it begins, and where it begins is the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Perhaps you're familiar with the Beatitudes, perhaps you've studied them or committed them to memory. The, the word Beatitude comes from the Latin word beatus, meaning blessing. Blessing. And so the idea here is blessed, blessedness are 
those, blessed are those who walk in the ways of the king, who live under his good and right leadership, under his kingship. It's a state of blessing or blessedness, a state of goodness and well-being for those who swear allegiance to the king, for those who live in submission to his kingship. That's this idea here of, of blessing. Blessed are those who follow in the ways of the king. Reading and studying the Beatitudes raises the question, whose blessing am I ultimately seeking in this life? The blessing of the Beatitudes is that we're seeking God's blessing, the king's blessing, Christ the king. We're seeking his approval, his his acceptance, his thumbs up. That's what we're seeking. But the reality is all of us are tempted daily to seek the approval, the thumbs up from other people, from other entities And the Beatitudes are a heart check for us. What am I ultimately after? Whose approval am I truly seeking? The Beatitudes kind of jar us and ask us, are you seeking the king's blessing first and foremost? Are you seeking the king's approval first and foremost? Or are you seeking your friend's approval, your coworkers' approval, your classmates' approval, your professor's approval, your church members' approval, your peers' approval. It's a heart check right out of the gates in the Sermon on the Mount. Whose blessing, whose acceptance, whose thumbs up are we ultimately seeking? If God's blessing is what you seek foremost, if God's opinion matters most to you, these beatitudes are going to be like the sun shining on your heart, encouraging you, sustaining you, blessing you. They will be profoundly personal and fruitful in your life. We must seek the blessing of God first and foremost in this life. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. Living under his kingship, receiving his blessing and his approval as we follow in his ways. We will break the Beatitudes, you see these in verses 3 through 10, into three digestible sermons, portions. So you notice I stopped in verse 5, that is intentional. Sometimes you'll hear the Beatitudes preached in one fell swoop. Sometimes they're broken sermon by sermon, Beatitude by Beatitude. We're kind of taking a middle road here. We're going to take three weeks in the Beatitudes so that our hearts can ruminate and dwell on them. I would also challenge you, it's very doable, Over the next three weeks, seek to commit the Beatitudes to memory. So try to memorize the first three this week and then the next ones. So in three weeks, you will have potentially memorized, committed to memory, the Beatitudes. They're fruitful in our lives as we hide them in our heart. Well, before Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice Matthew tells us he gathers people. He assembles people. We see this in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Crowds gather from all over Galilee to hear Jesus and to be healed by Jesus. He's commenced his public ministry. Word about him is spreading. People are gathering around him in 
The droves, they're just, they're coming out. They're flocking to hear him and to be healed by him. So what does he do? Matthew tells us he seeks higher elevation, likely an elevated place, the bluff of a mountain, someplace where perhaps his words can echo forth. He'd be more audible among the, the people that he's teaching. So he seeks higher ground, and then he sits down. This is odd for us. What am I doing right now as I speak and as I teach? I'm standing. This is sort of the, the American posture of teaching and proclamation. But in Hebrew culture, the rabbi would sit down and gather his pupils around him. In Jewish schools and synagogues, the rabbi, the instructor, sits down. It's the posture of instruction. He sits and he begins to share content. So Jesus sits down. He gets to an elevated place. He sits down as any rabbi would, and he begins to disseminate content to his followers. His disciples came to him as he sits down. Now, this is a broader definition of the 12 disciples or the the apostles. We see earlier in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, he has called his disciples, but this collection of disciples, as they're told here, would be broader than that. People who are curious about him, who are seeking to learn from him, people who are perhaps on the periphery of following him, but they're, they're growing in curiosity. So it's not just sort of a lesson among the 12, it's broader than that. People among the crowds are, 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 are gathering to him to hear him teach. We know it's not just the 12 disciples because at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, Matthew tells us, and when Jesus finished these sayings, in other words, when he finished his sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So it wasn't just the 12 that heard him teach. The whole crowd was there. They were hearing him teach from that elevated place because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. This is a teaching unlike they've ever heard. As Jesus taught in the Gospels, you see people hanging on his every word. Why? Because life flowed forth through his words. Jesus' words bring life. It is the words of Jesus that created life in Genesis chapter 1, and it is his words that bring recreated life in dead, sinful hearts. It was like listening to miraculous words coming, bringing life in dead and cold hearts. People hung on his words. And so the sermon begins. Verse 2, he opens his mouth and he taught them. You might say, why is Matthew sharing this detail? Of course you have to open your mouth to speak. Why is Matthew giving us this minutia? It's intentional. It is a, a Hebrew figure of speech or a Hebrew idiom. He opened his mouth to speak. It's a prophetic formula like, thus saith the Lord. Jesus is opening his mouth. The Lord is about to speak And Matthew's being very deliberate. It's time to listen. It's time to receive. It's time to open your ears. Thus saith the Lord. He opens his mouth and he speaks. He teaches them. He's harkening back to the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord. The Sermon on the Mount, as we've mentioned, begins with the Beatitudes. You can think of the Beatitudes as the distillation of the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's the Cliff's Notes version of the Sermon on the Mount. Or if you read scientific papers, it's the abstract at the very beginning that introduces you to what will follow. 
the ways of the king distilled in Matthew 5, 3 through 10. It's the Cliffsnose version, the abstract of what is to follow. The whole Sermon on the Mount declares the ways of the king, and the Beatitudes are the little mini-summary version, packed with meaning, dense. We'll explore and ruminate on three of them this morning. Before diving into those three, here's a key question. What is the kingdom of God? We mentioned these are the ways of the king and his kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? It is everywhere in the Gospels. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it's not a spatial, geographic kingdom. Rather, it is dynamic. It is a realm in which his rulership is honored and his people were living under that sovereign rule. You can think of the kingdom of God as Jesus' king dominion, his king dominion, where he and his dominion exists and is honored. So in one sense, the kingdom of God, he created everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But as we know, sin has corrupted and stained every corner of the world and of society. Yet as God, in his infinite wisdom, rolled out a plan of redemption. It began with words to recreate life in dead sinners' hearts. And as that word propagates, the kingdom of God is going forward, recreating sinners, calling them to himself. And wherever Christians are, the kingdom is because they're living in submission to King Jesus. It's where his sovereign reign and rule and his ways are visible and seen. That is the kingdom of God, the place where he extends his salvation to sinners, those sinners become his subjects, and they begin to walk in his ways. That's the kingdom of God, where he extends salvation to sinners, those sinners become his subjects, and they begin to live out his ways. That is the kingdom of God. So to enter the kingdom of God is to enter salvation life with your king, Jesus, and to begin to walk in his ways, and to reflect his character. That is the kingdom of God. Now you'll notice in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh-oh, Matthew's not using the kingdom of God. Why does Matthew use a different phrase? Instead of kingdom of God, he uses kingdom of heaven. It is thought that Matthew, a very devout Jew, is hesitant to use and to write the name of God, so he uses heaven, kind of a substitution approximation to God's name. He's a very devout, he doesn't want to, devout Jew does not want to use the name of God, so he says the kingdom of heaven. That's what he uses throughout his gospel. Finally, one last note on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. There's a tension here, because the kingdom of God is already on the one hand, and then it's not yet on the other hand. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated upon the first coming of Jesus. It's been set up through his life, death, and resurrection. The message continues to be propagated, but it's not fully consummated until he comes again, wipes every tear away. Sin is eradicated, and we will be with him in his consummated, fully established kingdom. So we live in between the already of the inauguration of his kingdom and the not yet of the consummation of his kingdom. We're in this in-between time as his kingdom message is going out through us, his kingdom subjects, seeking to welcome others into the kingdom before it's too late. 
Because at the second coming, there's no more kingdom subjects. All are gathered in by that time. We live in between the already and the not yet. So there's tension here. The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, is this referring to material realities? Economic poverty? No, it is an understanding of one's spiritual poverty, one's spiritual bankruptcy. What Jesus is drawing our eyes to is the priority of spiritual bankruptcy before him. Coming to terms with your spiritual bankruptcy, that there is no good in your spiritual account before him. You and I stand naturally in need of him. That's what poverty of spirit is. It is looking within, taking honest inventory of the spiritual shelves of your life and seeing that they're empty. And you need Christ to come and fill you. It's an understanding that you are spiritually lost and you need King Jesus to come and find you and rescue you. That's what spiritual poverty, it's an honest assessment about your spiritual state before a righteous and holy God. That's where he's going. Out of the gates, first beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Why does he start with this? Because this is the gateway into the kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom of King Jesus until you understand that you are spiritually bankrupt apart from him. And you need him and all of his spiritual riches to be transferred to your account by faith. That's why he starts here. It's the gateway into the kingdom. It's the way of relationship with the king. One has to come and say, I need God. I am desperate for God. And it's the hardest place to come to in your life because we in our sin nature want to be God and want to seek to live independently from God when we're wired and created to live dependently upon him. It's a hard thing to say. I am empty. I've come to the end of myself. I need God. Oh, but friends, it's where we have to come to in this life if we're going to have salvation from the king and live in his kingdom. I need God. It's the most deepest and genuine form of repentance, the gateway into the kingdom of God and relationship with King Jesus. I'm empty, and I need the filling of King Jesus. I'm lost, and I need the finding of King Jesus. Strategic very strategic as the first beatitude because it is the gateway. It's also, as this sermon begins, and the Sermon on the Mount, just let me tell you, frustrates people because it's unattainable in your own strength. And I believe this first beatitude is strategic because it's saying that we are bankrupt to walk in the ways of the king in our own strength in our own self-reliance, in our own spiritual resources or equipping, we are hopeless to fulfill the ways of the king on our own. So Jesus gets it out, of, out there, out of the gates. First thing, know that you are spiritually bankrupt, and unless you trust and cling to me, you can go nowhere. You have nothing apart from me. We cannot fulfill God's standards on our own. We are desperately in need of Christ the king. That's where he's... That's where he starts with the Sermon on the Mount. Poverty of spirit 
is the gateway into the kingdom and relationship with the king. Can I ask you, how would you assess the spiritual shelves in your own life? Look inside. Tell me what the pantry looks like. Tell me what the pantry looks like spiritually. Are you trusting in what you think you have on those shelves? Friends, you got to look at them and see that they're all empty. And that you need someone to come and fill you. How would you assess your spiritual state this morning? We're invited to see our poverty before a holy God, our spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Understand, acknowledge before that God, trust in him, you enter the gates, you have relationship with the king. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. Mourning and grief is what follows emotionally after we've come to spiritual terms with the emptiness in our own hearts and in the world around us. Mourning is the emotional counterpart to poverty of spirit. Grief of personal sin and corporate sin as well. It's a godly kind of grief. D.A. Carson writes, the Christian is to be the true realist. He reasons that death is there and must be faced. God is there and will be known by all either as Savior or as judge. Sin is there and it is unspeakably ugly in the light of God's purity. Eternity is there and every living human being is rushing headlong toward it. God's revelation is there. And the alternatives it presents will come to pass. Life or death. Pardon or condemnation. Heaven or hell. These are realities which will not go away. The person who lives in light of them and rightly assesses himself and his world in light of them cannot but mourn over his own spiritual condition and the spiritual condition of the world he or she lives in. We mourn of the sins and the blasphemies of our nation. We mourn the erosion of the very concept of truth. We mourn over the greed, the cynicism, the lack of integrity. We mourn that there are so few mourners. What Carson is pointing us to is the, is the godly grief that ought to flow as we take inventory personally and as we look around us corporately. Sin has run rampant. It's caused havoc, devastation, and it causes us to weep. Friend, when was the last time that you wept over your own sin? When was the last time you wept over the sin of another, a loved one in your family? The brokenness in a neighbor's life. Godly grief causes us to break over sin in our own lives and in the lives of others. That's what he's saying. Yet, those who mourn will be comforted. Those who exercise a godly grief will be consoled. How? 
Well, we'll be comforted personally because Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, his name, the name of the Messiah, Jesus, means he saves. He was named strategically because he came to save sinners. He's paid our debt. We're comforted when we realize the truth of our Savior's work. We're comforted corporately because God is working in this broken world. He's answering our prayers. I understand not all of them, at least not now, but some of them he will. As I was reading my Bible this morning early, a little card fell out of my Bible that I hadn't seen in a while. This is a prayer card that has my brother on it. I wrote this in 2009. What is that, 14 years ago? A number of needs. Some of these are personal. He's battled a lot of things, battled addiction. One of the prayer requests at the very bottom is what struck me. Oh God, provide him with a healthy Christ-following community. Provide him a church that can invest in him because he doesn't want to listen to me. Sometimes your family's the hardest to minister to, isn't it? Pray for good churches and good people to intersect life with the folks that you're praying for to know Jesus. Pray for a healthy, Christ-following community. Two months ago, my mother calls me and says, in somewhat of a dramatic way, but I understood what she was saying. She's like, Dane, I can die a happy mother. I said, Mom, please tell me. I found out that Eric, on his own initiative, is going to a, a church plant in the area. It's about seven or eight years old, just like our church plant. And Pastor Larry's ministering to him, reaching out to him, inviting him into his own house. And he's going and he's taking his wife, Anne, and his daughter. 14 years later, God is answering prayer. He's working. So be comforted as you look at the brokenness all around you. God is still working in this world. He's answering your prayers. Keep praying them. He's working. He's working. Don't be discouraged. Be comforted. His work is continuing. And you and I will be ultimately comforted by what will come in the future. Christ's consummated kingdom is coming, as we've said, the already, the not yet. The not yet will be beautiful. The, yet, the not yet will involve every tear being wiped away, sin being done away with. We will be with our king forever. That is what's ultimately comforting in the midst of a broken world. So we will be comforted. As we grieve over sin personally and corporately, we will be comforted by the reality of the coming kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Thirdly and finally for today, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Very important word here, meekness. Thank you, brother. Meekness. You've probably heard this before. What is... What is meekness? It is not weakness. I know that that's cliche, but it's true. Meekness is not weakness. It is not pliability. It is not easygoing and kind of like go with the flow and everything's fine. Meekness is a controlled desire 
to put your own will down so that another's can be elevated. Meekness is self-denying. Meekness is deferring to other people, elevating other people, putting on the mind of Christ, Philippians chapter 2, who thought of other people before himself. That's what meekness is, a controlled desire to see another blessed before yourself. If poverty of spirit relates primarily to relationship with God, well, meekness relates more to relationship with others. So now Jesus is getting personal in our relationship with other human beings. Are we willing to deny ourselves and to defer to other people for their good, for their benefit? It's not trying to grab and get ahead and stepping stones on top of other people, students, classmates, coworkers. No, it's a willing, willingness to know where your inheritance ultimately lies. It's in Christ. You have everything in him. You will inherit the earth. It's all yours because it's all Christ. You're not about grabbing in this life and stepping stone work behavior. No. Are you willing in your job to let someone else be promoted? To let someone else get the raise? To let someone else get the acclamation and the praise? It's meekness. It's the mind of Christ. Not trying to get ahead, bite, scratch, and claw your way. Trying to find treasures in this life. You know if you're meek, you already have them in Christ. You don't need to bite, scratch, and crawl. You can rest. You can cease striving and know that he is Lord and your everything is in him. The reward of meekness is to inherit the earth. Again, you don't have to grab in this life because you already have it all in Christ. It's true contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. First Timothy chapter 6. Why is that? Because you can see striving and going after the what the world goes after. You already know you have your treasure in Christ. You can see striving and just rest in him. You have it all. He is your true treasure. And it points to an eternal perspective. When Christ comes and consummates his kingdom, what does the Bible say he's going to do? He's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new earth, it will too be ours forever and ever and ever. And every day will be better than the next in the new heaven and the new earth. So you know, I don't have to grab in this earth because I'm going to get what's ahead in the new heaven and the new earth. Contentment. What drives you? Are you going after and grabbing stuff in this life? Or are you about storing up treasures in the next life? Knowing that he is your treasure. He has all that you need. It is all yours in Christ. Meekness is the very mind of Christ, the very attitude of Christ. Later on in Matthew's gospel, he'll tell us of the triumphal entry. When Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem the week before, the last week of his life, the week before his death, he will tell us, quoting Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Behold, your king is coming. Righteous and having salvation is he. Meek, the same word, and mounted on a donkey. Jesus was by no means weak. He came. His strength was restrained all throughout. He knew what he was going to accomplish. 
Meek he came, riding on a donkey, having salvation in his hands. Jesus accomplished our salvation through his meek mission that was accomplished on the cross. It looked like lowliness and humiliation, but that's the way of this meek king. And he says to sinners, this is what he says using the same word, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, same word here, the Beatitudes, and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is meek. He defers to you. He stoops to serve you at the cross. And if you would just receive his tenderness, his meekness, his lowliness, you will be served and saved by him, set on a path to know him and to love him and to serve him and to reflect the ways of his kingdom. This is the mind of Christ, meekness. It's how he saves us. And we as his followers just walk in his footsteps. The meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look forward to the remainder of these Beatitudes. Please join us next Sunday. We'll cover a few more. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the privilege that it is to study your word. God, help us to open it regularly, to read it, to take it in. Help us to commit it to memory, to hide it in our hearts, that it would bear fruit in time. God, help us to take honest inventory of our own spiritual state, that we might come to a place of poverty of spirit, walking through the threshold of the kingdom as we do. God, help us to mourn, have godly grief over sin and brokenness all around us, and be comforted by the truth that you are coming again. And God, teach us to be meek, to deny self, to put others first, to have the very mind of Christ who saved us through his meekness. We desire to walk with you, to grow in your character, to walk in your ways. Help us to do that by your power and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.